Well, this is a hard day today, a hard Sunday for, I think, especially for the fathers of girls. And I think that a lot of the fathers of girls in America probably don't have words to describe the anxiety that they're feeling right now. And for many men, we're not equipped uh, to deal with anxiety. And so sometimes it comes out as anger. So I'm going to talk about abortion today um, because I am a member of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. Uh, this evening I'm flying to Cleveland uh, to meet with the leaders of our denomination on Monday in order to gather, to pray, to ask the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do next, and also to speak with some people who are in their 80s and 90s who are ordained clergy and who were members of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion in the 1950s and 60s, prior to the passage of Roe. I want to begin in prayer. Gracious God, it was said by you that it is done, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that to the thirsty you would give water without cause from the spring of the water of life. Give us that water, Lord. Give us hope and dwell with us and give us a word. Amen. I, I have preached on this topic in 50 churches, perhaps. I have hours of sermons. And to preach to this matter and attempt to give you hope as you go out into the world is a, is a challenge. Because the world is so bitterly divided right now. It's hard also because the church is so bitterly divided right now. And that wasn't always the case. I'm going to talk about the history, but first I need to talk about some very deep history in relationship to the Bible and to what Jesus Christ tells us today. So I'm going to start with something that I've preached on many times. This false notion, this wicked lie that there is scarcity in the world. This idea that there's not enough to go around. It is simply untrue. It flies in the face of the Bible. It flies in the face of reason and science. It flies in the face of economics. There is an abundance to go around. But human beings evolved to imagine that the world is a place of scarcity and fear. And there is a scarcity issue at work in this system, deep down in the roots of the thing. Now, for various reasons, Men throughout history have taken up the position that it is critically important that the children that they raise to adulthood are their own children, biologically speaking. Okay? Their own children. Now think about how often you hear the phrase paternity test. Okay? You've likely never heard of someone taking a maternity test. Right? Because women are nearly always certain about whose children they're raising. They were there when they were born. <laughs> but men, however, can't completely control for paternity. They can't do it. So they have developed strategies that date back to the Bronze Age. How can I be certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that the offspring I am raising is truly my own biological offspring? And that I'm not being tricked or deceived into sacrificing my resources in order to raise another man's offspring. That's just, this is the fear. 
One method of preventing patrilineal confusion, that's the word for this, patrilineal confusion, is through confinement. If a woman cannot leave the house, she cannot get pregnant. So she must be confined. Okay, well, sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes she must leave the house. All right, then she needs to be attended to by someone trustworthy. A husband, a father, a brother, or an eldest son has to go with her, which is the case in rural Pakistan today. Keep an eye on her. If none of these options are available, there are methods uh, that she, and she must leave the house. There are methods for taking the house with her. This is the burqa, right? This gown that completely covers the woman. But what happens if she cannot be forced to remain in the house, she cannot be forced to dress a certain way, and she can't be monitored by an attendant male when she's out in the world? Then we need to, then the next strategy, and the one that we use in the West, is to de-incentivize leaving the house and de-incentivize sex. So in Western societies, we de-incentivize leaving the house by paying women less for the same work. We do this so that so that they earn less than what child care costs, okay? If they earn less than what child care costs, they won't go to work. They'll stay home and raise their kids. It makes it economically impossible for women to afford paid child care instead of remaining in the home. And then we embraced a culture that intentionally removes helpers and other supportive caregivers from the home, from the picture. Where do you think this comic idea about the nasty mother-in-law comes from? You know, that isn't present in other cultures. It isn't present in Middle Eastern cultures and African cultures. The nasty mother-in-law, the mean mother-in-law, is an American invention. Every family is expected to be nuclear, and every nuclear family is uh, economically coerced into purchasing their own house. We remove grandmothers aunties and uncles and others from the house. Elder caregivers are placed in nursing homes rather than remaining at home to help care for children. Extended intentional families, the, the, the anthropological cornerstone of human child rearing become dispersed and spread out. Child care is reduced to the labor of a single parent, something completely unheard of in the history of human development. And then, children are expected to leave the home at the age of 18, precisely when they become the most helpful at rearing the other children. And then we de-incentivize the sex act. We remove access to choice by teaching abstinence, red herring tactic that's never worked, limiting access to birth control, creating an economic system dependent on standardized education, okay, so think of the idea of the quote-unquote tragedy of the young mother who is unable to get her high school diploma because she got pregnant. This is a system that we invented out of whole cloth. And then finally, we make it clear to young women that they have sex and become pregnant, she will be forced to have the baby because abortion is illegal and is punishable by the harshest and cruelest penalties. This is the final step in controlling women's lives. And I think that it is, now that it is outlawed, they will begin to work their way back up the chain of historic liberty until, children, until women become property again. Okay, that's the scarcity model. And it is completely at odds with the Bible. Jesus Christ has given us a way out of this mess. 
He releases us to create our own intentional families, born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, as we just heard from Paul. Life belongs to me, says Jesus Christ. I am the beginning and the end. And there's no relationship but our kinship in the body of Christ. Indeed, in the eyes of God, the children that we raise spiritually are more our own children than those we create biologically. And our genetic relatedness is meaningless to God. Meaningless to God. Race is meaningless. Adoption is the same or in many cases better than biological parenthood. And this theme runs thick through the Bible from cover to cover. It no longer matters from whom or whence the sperm and egg came. It's the person that's holy, not their genes. I am the beginning and the end, Jesus says. Jesus' last act, one of his last acts on the cross, was to effect an adoption. When he said to the beloved disciple, Behold, your mother, indicating his own mother. And he said to his mother Mary, Behold, this is your son. His last act was an act of adoption. So we've got at the root of this thing a fear issue. A fear issue in the hearts of men. A fear and a desire to control. And we have this because of our somewhat unique biology. Almost every other mammal has a means of controlling for pregnancy. So I want to talk about bears. Bears are amazing. I love bears. They're so cool. When I lived in Memphis, uh, the zoo was across the street from my house, and it was a free zoo. I used to go there all the time and go to the bear tank, the polar bear tank. Um, and if you didn't know, Memphis has one of the finest zoos in, uh, the, in the country. They got a polar bear exhibit. You can walk in the tank and stand behind the glass, and you can see into the water, and they watch the bears swimming behind this thick glass. I'll never forget this time I was there. I was just hanging out, you know, just me and the bears doing our thing. And this kid walks in right up to the glass. He's like probably 10, 11 years old. The polar bears love this. They love when the kid comes up because then they, they dive into the water. They go, rah, swim up to the kids. And this boy, he looks, he's shocked and he looks at his mom and he shouts, it looks so real. That is a commentary on the state of things in the world today, folks. But here's my favorite bear fact. It's about black bears. They live in, they live in Michigan. During the mating season, a mother black bear will mate with a bunch of different males. And after this, five, always, five fertilized eggs will implant in her womb. And then she goes about the business of eating enough food to carry her through hibernation in the winter. And as she hibernates, her body burns through the store of fat that she's built up. Now, as her body grows leaner, the fertilized eggs continue to develop, but she will spontaneously release or reabsorb one or two or even all of the eggs based on, depending on the amount of fat left in her body so that she has enough milk to feed the cubs. And so when she awakens in the spring, after having given birth in her sleep, I know, right? Is that fair? <laughs> She's only going to have as many cubs as she has uh, milk to feed. If it was a very good harvest season, she could give birth to all five cubs. Biologists and people in the DNR make a really big deal out of this. If they see a mama bear with five cubs, they'll try to take a picture and post it. But uh, if it was a lean year, she may only have one cub or no cubs at all. Either way, the hand of God has provided a brilliant means of ensuring that she will only have as many cubs as she can feed. It's an amazing system. This system does not exist in primates. It does not exist for humans. 
And anthropologists tell us that even today in impoverished parts of the world, when famine strikes and resources are scarce, the only practical means of birth control is infanticide. Infanticide. And this is unthinkable and unspeakable. But it's the same for mountain gorillas, for bonobos, for orangutans. It's true in non-industrial societies. And so to counter this horrific reality, human beings develop the use of abortifacients. Abortifacients are medicines that cause the human body to spontaneously abort. For example, the oil of uh, the common plant pennyroyal has been used for this purpose for thousands of years. Archaeologists believed it was used for such a purpose even five, six thousand years ago. Some theologians, including myself, believe that, that this is exactly the, the bitter water referred to in the abortion procedure that's in the Bible. There's an abortion procedure described in the Old Testament in the fifth chapter of the book of Numbers. So abortion has been a constant companion for human life for thousands of years, but modernity and medicine has given us access to safe abortion. Now a lot of people ask me, where does the UCC stand on this? What's the United Church of Christ position? And there's no, I mean, it's complicated because in the United Church of Christ we believe very strongly that humans are given the gift of discernment by God to make up their own mind. And so we don't tend to tell people how to think. But I can tell you the history of how we have thought. Historically, Reformed Christians, such as us, Christians that came out of the Protestant Reformation, have held that abortion is permissible in all cases where the life of the woman is endangered and at any time prior to the quickening of the child. Prior to the quickening of the child. Quickening is a very old word, but it's used to describe the time after the first movements are detected in the womb. Prior to the existence of legal abortion in America, Protestant pastors such as myself were often on the front lines of shepherding pregnant women to the offices of doctors who could perform abortion safely. And anti-abortionism, the idea that no one should have access to abortion, was entirely the domain of the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church viewed it as a form of birth control. And they said no to birth control, and we said yes. So that was where we stood. Now insofar as Reformed Christians held that birth control was not a theological issue, we felt that abortion under reasonable circumstances was acceptable. Nobody, however, believed that a fertilized embryo was equal to a child's life. Not even the Roman Catholic Church believed this. This is an entirely modern idea. In 1967, Protestant pastors and Jewish rabbis banded together to go public with their work obtaining safe abortions for women because women were dying by the thousands. Deaths from illicit abortions in New York City accounted for nearly half of all maternal deaths. Half. A 1960s survey of low-income women who had abortions found out that 8 in 10 had attempted a self-induced abortion. Only 2% of women in New York City said that a trained physician was involved. And so this was the birth of the clergy consultation service on abortion. It was clergy and medical doctors who led the charge to legalize abortion and make it safe in America in the 60s and 70s. Abortion only became an issue for the Republican Party and for Reformed Protestant Christians in the 70s. And why? Because they needed to recruit Roman Catholic votes from the cities. To break up the blue 
blocks, the Democrat machines in the inner cities. And so they recruited Roman Catholics to join the party by coming out against abortion. This was in the late 70s. I can show you an article of the very first time a Republican candidate for office won a primary on the issue of abortion. It was in 1977, well after Roe. Then, okay. So in a denomination like the UCC, there's rarely one single position on any given issue. But our advocacy work in our church for, is carried out along the lines of justice. And so, in other words, justice for people who are pregnant, justice for women, and that's why the vast majority of UCC pastors are pro-choice. What about other traditions, other churches, other faith traditions? I don't like to preach about other religions, but because they're often very diverse and I have to paint with a broad brush. But I've been frustrated lately by a lot of the stuff that I've been seeing coming from the pro-choice movement who claim that overturning Roe represents Sharia law coming to America. Some, they say that legislators in Mississippi and Missouri are trying to create their own form of Christian Sharia law, right? This, this repressive strain of Wahhabism and Islam. Under Sharia law, abortion is permitted up until the fourth month of gestation. Under Sharia law, under the Taliban today, abortion is permitted up to the fourth month. This is the time of quickening. So Sharia law is significantly more pro-choice and permissive than many of these laws in America. And that's because even under repressive, brutal regimes like the Taliban, they value women's lives. In Judaism, abortion is supported because the Hebrew Bible contends in various places that the soul enters the body when the baby takes its first breath. The breath of God enters the body with the first inhalation. Under traditional Orthodox Judaism, the fetus is considered an organ of the woman's body. And this is why, in the Old Testament, the death of a fetus and the death of a woman are treated very, very differently when meeting out justice. The death of a fetus incurs a fine, a monetary fine, the death of a woman incurs the death penalty. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So, what of us, Protestant, Reformed, United Church of Christ, Congregationalists, Christian types, our heritage has been almost without exception that an acorn is not an oak tree, a seed is not a rose, and a fetus is not a human being. And we know this instinctually. We know it instinctually because we celebrate people's birthdays, not their conception days. We know it because if any of us, if any of us were asked to choose between a medical cooler with 10 fertilized zygotes and the life of a three-year-old child, any of us would save that three-year-old child over that medical cooler. Now the idea isn't that that is without value or life. Each of those fertilized eggs is a potential human being. Each of those fertilized eggs is a miracle, is an absolute wonder. But that does not make it a person. And finally, if we contend that abortion is equivalent to murder, which is what we are heading toward today, right now, right now we would need to build prisons sufficient to house 43 million women in the United States alone. Now, I used to think that this brought clarity to the issue, but it doesn't, because women are being thrown in prison for life. These new laws 
will incarcerate women for life, and in Texas, for the love of God, they will use the death penalty. It's disingenuous to suppose that people will be reasonable about this because they've shown that they won't. But thank God that Jesus Christ tells us that I am the beginning and the end of life. Does life begin at conception? No, life begins before conception. Life begins when the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the Ruach, the Tohu Wabohu is, is, is calmed by the voice of God. And this act is still taking place today. To claim that life begins at conception is to remove God completely from the process of the creation of the cosmos. Life, including gestation, belongs to God. And from what we know now and understand, it is not God's intention that every fertilized egg become a human being. We can tell this scientifically because 40% of all fertilized eggs fail to implant and are spontaneously aborted. God's shown God's hand. And for this, Jesus Christ himself affirms in the New Testament that it is indeed, as he says, better for some people to never have been born. Again, the anti-abortion position is not about preserving life. It will result in countless deaths. It is not about preserving life. It's about preserving control over life. Control over women and their bodies. And this is antithetical to the movement of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, there is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free. So of our movement, we must somehow find the strength to say that women do not belong to men, but rather that they belong to God and God alone. And only God, and only God, can give us the grace that we need to accomplish this task. Life belongs to God. And we are not to be afraid of scarcity. We are not to be afraid for such that we need to control Control women. They are God's alone. And to the last, I will work to defend their God-given rights over their own bodies. And I pray that you will choose to join me in that because they belong to God. Our movement is very old. It has gone through many changes. It is much older than the United States of America or the United States Constitution. Our movement is 2,000 years old. And we will go through times of hope and plenty and times of fear and scarcity. But the one thing that we can say with confidence is that we are all part of a family of faith and that we are all part of a movement united not by biology, not by genetics, but by the Holy Spirit of God. And that that gives us the courage that we need to go out into the world and tell the truth. There's enough to go around. There's enough for everybody. And we need not be afraid. If you want to speak to me about this this week, my ears and heart are open to hear what you have to say or if you want to grieve about this. And I will report back to you next week when I return from Cleveland. Let us remember... Our faith this week, be kinder than necessary. 
for many are grieving, many are grieving, and give thanks to God for the grace given to us by Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.